When I was first asked to look at Suikoden 3, my first reaction was, which game was that again? Not that I had anything particularly against the Suikoden series. I've played all of them except for four, um, and the ones that never came out in the States. But it didn't really strike out in my memory in any particular significant way. You know, there's usually at least some big thing that I remember about each given game. And 3 was just this big, massive, huh? And then I start reading up on it, you know, before I pull out my uh, my PS2 to play this game, and I'm like, oh, right, right. This is the one with Luke. Or Luck. I'm going to go with Luke. He's the most memorable thing about this game to me by a wide margin, along with a general level of disappointment. I want to explain what I mean by that really quick, though. This game, in particular, does more to flesh out the world of Suikoden, or Suikoden, if you prefer, than probably any of the others do. And it feels like part two of what should be a trilogy. I mean, obviously, it's the third game of three at this point, and then they make four and five, but four was earlier and five was earlier. Three is the furthest one along in the story. And then they did the guidance stories, which have nothing to do with anything. It just feels like the story just kind of stopped at a certain point. Now, there's reasons behind this. And I have seen rumors about the fact that this game was actually supposed to be uh, a lead into something more, and that for various real-life reasons that this was, you know, they, they shifted direction, and then the series was eventually put on ice. I don't know how true those rumors are, because I wasn't able to verify them myself. In fact, I found very little concrete information about where the game was going or where the franchise was going in general, which really was frustrating when I can't find anything of actual significant, you know, tangible evidence on this. All I can say is hearsay or things that might fit a pattern or whatever. I'll talk more about that in a minute, because I want to talk about the gameplay really briefly. It's a Suikoden game. You know, <laughs> you've got your war battles, you've got your you know standard RPG battles, and then you've got your dual battles. This game felt really weird to play, and it took me a long time to really put a finger on why that is. It felt... It felt like they had jumped systems too soon, or didn't really know what to make of the new one. Because, in many ways, this feels, looks, and plays like a PlayStation 1 game. And I'm just going through it like... Okay, I guess I'll do that. Like, and there's a certain level of clunkiness to it. With the exception of the JRPG fights, which you can do this whole, you know, select tactic thing, for the most part, it felt slow. I, I, I'm trying to think how to explain this, but a lot of it boils down to the way they use the animations where, you know, everyone has their own animation, but they have to conclude an animation before they can start the next step of their of their procedure. And this made cutscenes just kind of weird. It also meant that, I mean, there wasn't even any animation at all when it came to the battle things. And that's another thing, if I may be so bold. The war screens, I don't care for the war combat in this game at all. I'm just going to say that as bluntly as I can. The pseudo-card game, board game thing they've got going on, not my thing. I didn't enjoy it. Um, it there, there's certainly some tactics involved, but it really did feel like I was sitting down and playing at a board game rather than you know engaging in a war. And while that's not necessarily a bad thing, it's not something I can praise if that makes sense. I, as weird as this sound, I felt I felt that Suikoden Two um, 
And Suikoden 5, I guess, is the other one I would really point to, had better war combat than this one. Although Suikoden 5 is kind of another thing. Let's, let's not go there. The whole game felt cumbersome. And it made it so that I felt like I was slogging through the game rather than really wanting to, to like, really being engaged. The tempo was just off constantly. In the end, the impression I was left with was that I was playing a board game where periodically I'd pick up a book and read a few more pages. Now, that's not necessarily, like, negativity. I'm not saying it's terrible and crap, but it certainly is not something I can praise. It is just something that's sort of there. It, it, it's one of the reasons, and the reason I'm trying, I'm failing so much at saying this, the reason I'm trying to explain this as clearly as I can is because this is why the game, in, in my opinion, is so unmemorable to me. I had to write down the name of several characters just to remember them for you because a lot of the characters in the game were not particularly memorable for me. I mean, what is there to say about Hugo? What, what do you say about him? Well, he's a hero. He helps people because he helps people. I, I mean, you know, I can talk about the Karaya tribe and uh, the idea of the, the six clans and all that. It's five clans now. But um, I don't really have much to say about the specifics. This felt like watching... So the book thing, right? You got the board game. Reading, I guess, is more accurate. You know, watching a documentary of a particular war. Now, maybe that's the feel they were going for, but nothing about it really jumped out at me as something that's like, oh, that's awesome. With one big exception, and I'm actually going to open with this because, well, it's the only thing I really have to discuss. It's going to be a super short video if that's not obvious. Because I don't have anything else to say. I mean, I have a note here for Luke. Or, excuse me, not for Luke, for Hugo. Obviously, I have a note for Luke. I have a note for Ghetto. I have a note for Chris. I have a note for each of the three factions. I, I guess I could talk about those briefly. So, <clears throat> one thing I do like very much is the three perspectives thing they've got going on. We've got a member of the, uh, the Grassland Tribes. We've got a member of the Zexan Confederacy. And we have a member of the Harmonian Southern Frontier Defense Force. <laughs> You know, basically working for Harmonia. And from these, we see the three different perspectives of the war. It is, it's probably one of the best aspects of the game overall. I'd say the second best aspect of the game from its storytelling perspective is the fact that this is a war between three powers, and none of them are the good guys, and none of them are the bad guys. It's just three nations which happen to have varying political interests. I mean, the whole reason this game kicks off, not counting Luke's thing, is because of the fact that Harmonia's 50-year treaty with the Grasslands finally terminated. And the only reason they even had that treaty was because of what might have been a freak accident and the detonation of the true Flamebrune 50 years ago during the first uh, Flamebringer War. So <laughs> they were like, all right, on the off chance that that was deliberate, We'll have a non-aggression treaty for 50 years. However, we get to keep whatever we already took. Harmonia is actually kind of interesting. They've been present in every game thus far. One, two, and three. They will also be mentioned in five. I don't recall if they were in four. Uh, I don't know four that well because I've never played it. But um, they... Uh, Harmonia, in many ways, has kind of been behind a lot of things that have been happening. And not, not in the Machiavellian, I am the one villain manipulating anything. It's more like, it's a more realistic perspective. Harmonia has a finger in each pot, or pie, or however you want to use that analogy. They are the people who 
keep pay attention to everything on the world stage. They are a global power, basically. And they do a lot of interventionism for probably for their own bad reasons. They also have a lot of internecine politics. Literally the whole reason the Highland thing came up was because of that civil war. I think I mentioned that in my Suikinenth II uh, rumination some years ago. And so we learned that they were involved in supporting uh, the uh, uh, the Felonin Khan. Philonin, I'm not sure how to pronounce that situation, and the Jousten situation, you know, Suikoden one, Suikoden two, and of course they made efforts to in, get involved in Suikoden five as well. It's just they were rebuffed in that particular case, probably as a result of internecine politics. I mentioned they have internal stuff as well. You know, they've got the two main factions, and then they've got the, the third faction, and then they've got the bishops because this is a theocracy, and the bishops are probably the most interesting group to me because they remind me of the Arcadian judges over in FF12. Um, the people who, while technically connected to the military, are actually kind of separate or indeed above the usual chain of command, having kind of political and military clout that goes above and beyond what everyone else can have. The Darth Vaders, if you will, of the Harmonian group. And I don't believe we see any more bishops other than the two. Sasari... Uh, Sasserai. I'm going to go with Sasserai. And, of course, Luke. Um, and I like that presentation of it, because for a theocracy like that, it makes sense that the, the people who are literally dubbed as bishops of their particular holy order, you know, the holy Harmonian Empire, uh, are the people who would have that level of power that basically bypasses the standard political uh, machinations. It doesn't matter which faction they particularly belong to. They may not even belong to a faction. Which brings me to the Harmonian Southern Defense Frontier Force, which I just said wrong. It's actually Harmonian Southern Frontier Defense Force. <laughs> the group that Godot is part of, right? Um, I love the concept of that, and I, I wish we saw more of it, if anything. It's the group of the undesirables. All right, we need a army of thugs and criminals. We need we need some place to put criminals as sentencing. We need some place to put people who are third class citizens or worse. Uh, we need people some place to put where the mercenaries go. And that's the military order and the, the organization structure that governs that particular side of the Harmonian military. You go over there and you deal with the crap. <laughs> you are basically the well, I'd say the grunts, but I usually mean that word with positive connotations. So all I'm going to say is that you are the fodder. Go deal with this. And it's interesting to me because Godot himself is rather taciturn. Um, he doesn't say a lot, and he tends to keep to himself. I don't have a lot to say about his character. He's been around for a while. He's one of the biggest uh, veterans who isn't magically augmented amongst the characters in this game. But he also carries himself with a weird sort of pragmatism. It's easy to look at Godot and say that he's a good person, but I think it would be more accurate to call him a pragmatic person, the kind of person who understands that what is better for others can also be better for myself, and the kind of person who understands that what is worse for a country is probably going to be worse in general, you know, for me, for others, for people I care about, for things I care about. You know, not the kind of person who is going to adhere to an ideology so much as a more basic let's call it a grounded understanding of reality, which is funny in a setting where magic is so prolific. Um, if I may inter interrupt myself for a second, one of the things I really like about the Suikoden's in general is their near-seamless merger of magic and martial. Uh, the idea of 
making things. I mean, this, like I said, this feels like a war documentary. There are other games that pull this off as well. The Ogre Battle series tends to get in this direction, especially Tactics Ogre. Uh, Final Fantasy Tactics and FF12 both kind of were in this direction. Um, uh, Final Fantasy Type-0, with, with some exceptions, was also going for this general thing. The idea of a war game, a war story, which is basically a political drama emphasized by wartime events which also happens to include magic. Now, the degree to, of success to which the magic is woven into the story naturally and seamlessly varies from game to game. And it is interesting to note that in Suikoden 3, um, well, let's just go through the structure here. This entire incident starts because of Luke, basically, who provokes a situation, uh, basically does a very classic false flag situation to provoke the Zexans and the Grasslanders to go to war to each other. Woo, war! And they've been rivals since forever. Like, the only reason this false flag operation succeeded at all is because both sides already hated each other and were already just ready to go. You know, it's like, all right, well, okay, we'll make peace for now. Oh, no, we're not. We're going to kill you. And, um... <laughs> but the moment Harmonia starts stepping in, both sides are like, hang on, we got a bigger problem to deal with now. And so they go and unite against Harmonia, which is crushing them like a bug. I mean, the poor Zephyr clan, right? And then... Harmonia finds out that there's an even bigger threat over there. And this is where I bring up the magical thing. A lot of these games that, that do this tend to do this. Right towards the end of the game, there usually is a magical threat that just kind of shows up. And sometimes it's done well, and sometimes it's done poorly. And I feel like in this case, it's almost aggravating how the game kind of rushes towards a resolution. Especially given stuff I'll talk about in a minute when it comes to Luke himself. What do you guys prefer? Real quick, do you prefer Luck or Luke? Or Luke? I mean, is there another way to say L-U-C? There's not a lot of ways to say that word that I'm aware of, but then again, I'm an ignorant American, so what the hell do I know? The other thing I want to comment on, though, is... One of the things they emphasize, this is actually in Suikoden 2 as well, with Luke, is that the, the true runes are way, way stronger than the typical magic thing. I mean, that's even part of this story as well. Again, the true fire rune... <laughs> is what led to the 50 Years Peace, or the 50 Years Non-Aggression Treaty, I should say. It just makes me wonder if the true runes are of that level of strength, why they aren't used more often. Now, there's an implication, which to my knowledge has never been verified, please correct me if I'm wrong on this, that using a true rune, especially at such a level, is very costly for the person using it. And yet at the same time, I'm not sure if I could really believe that because there are plenty of times when someone uses a true rune and they are, you know, and, it, and they're just fine. It's just like they're just using it. It's cool. I don't know. I don't know. What do you guys think? <clears throat> because I really do wonder, especially since, for example, the true wind rune is literally an army-changing rune. Why does he not use that more often? Anyways. Where was I? Uh, Harmonia, right. So uh, let's go ahead and continue talking about Harmonia. I don't have much to say about the Grasslands areas. It's I, I love the politics of this, I really do, but I just don't have a lot to say about it. And I think I, this is one of those situations where I'd just be reciting the game back to you. Play the game, it's cool. Um, <laughs> you know, or watch a Let's Play of it or something. Because we've got the Grasslands and their whole internecine thing, and the Zexan Confederacy, they're not exactly unified either. There's politics going on all over the place. I felt so bad for Chris. Uh, by the way, I chose Chris as my bearer of the Flame Room. I know it's not canon, I don't care. Uh, she's awesome. <laughs> she's easily my favorite of the three. Chris is this wonderful example of someone who is of high noble blood, who 
is pretty good at playing the game, I'd say. She knows how to dance the dance in the political circles, but I get the really strong impression that she frickin' hates it. Especially since she's so much more comfortable once she gets out on the battlefield. Nowhere is this more apparent than uh, there's this scene where she's you know, kowtowing, basically, not literally, but you know, metaphorically kowtowing to, to the council. Like, yes, of course, you know, and of course your business interests are more than acceptable. Yes, everything. And then, like, not too many scenes later, she's out in the battle, she's like, everyone form up, let's go. Completely in charge, completely on top of the situation. Um, to me, that speaks of a warrior born who just doesn't really want to be a politician, but understands the, the reality of having to be one. I, I like that extra layer, that extra dynamic. It makes her more than a one-dimensional character. She also reminds me a lot of Agrius, which was one of my favorite characters back in Final Fantasy Tactics. So, um, and uh, anyways, so... We've got this internecine affair with the Confederacy. It's a Confederacy is the first problem. Second of all, they've got loads of corruption. Their aristocracy is is rotten to the core. And then over here on the uh, on the side of the group, I can't even think of the name of all of a sudden, uh, the Grasslanders. I, I, I guess the Grasslands? They just call it the Grasslands, but thinking about it, that's almost an improper terminology. It's basically a name for a chunk of territory, which happens to include several different political powers, like the steppes. You know, that's what I'm most reminded of here, the Mongol steppes. Uh, it's just a territory that hasn't really been unified. It never really is throughout the course of the series. Each of their tribes having their own particular idioms, cultures, customs. It's, it's actually fascinating to me that these people manage to coexist at all. In fact, they kind of don't, if you pay attention. There's been years of warfare amongst the clans and amongst the Confederacy, usually only stopping to wage war with each other. This kind of constant conflict, you might think, is, God, there must be something causing this. But then again, if you look at real-life history, uh, you could see that constant conflict is kind of a thing in real-life history. That only really stopped... Uh, asterisk. That only really stopped at the level and extent that it was at the end of World War II. Yes, obviously we still have constant conflict in the world, but... I'm sorry, we don't have the kind of conflict we used to. We don't have non-stop wars with non-stop armies non-stopping each other. <laughs> Not like we used to. And I hope we never go back to that, because that was a mess. Anyways, I'm going to get off topic. I don't get into real-world stuff. What I do want to get is, is, is into fictional stuff. Because Harmonia in this one... I've heard a lot of people try to relate each of these powers to real-life powers. But the more I think about it, this is just my opinion. But I don't think there's a one-to-one -one parallel for any of these things. Uh, obviously, I, I just compared the Grasslands to the Mongol Steppes. Um, I could compare the Zexan Confederacy to the Venetian era, or Ven Venetian? <sighs> I don't know what else to properly call that. And I've heard lots and lots of people refer to the Holy Harmonian Empire as the Russians, the Russian Federation specifically. I'm not sure I believe that, though. To me, it feels like any allegory is unintentional. It feels like they just decided to make a faction that would work within the fictional setting, and then any parallels to real-world factions just happen to be because you know, obviously there's there's nothing new under the sun, and certain things are just going to relate to other certain things. The other thing I find really fascinating, uh, politically speaking, about this whole situation, is that the Harmonians don't really do what I would consider a decent method of conquest. They have this whole tier system. You know, you're, you're a... Uh, 
Oh god, I actually forget their proper terminology. Is it a level one citizen? This, this is a long game. Forgive me. It's like a tier one or class one. You know, you're you're. Oh, that's it. It's your first class citizen, second class citizen, third class citizen, right? You know, the, the classes of citizens, the fact that you literally have different rights and rules and, and uh, capabilities, powers, political affluence, a, a right to, to serve in certain militaries or in certain uh, political offices, based on which class you are. And to me, that feels like a not particularly uh, efficient method of conquest, because all you're doing is basically ensuring that all of the people you have just conquered are going to be pissed off at you, because all of them have less rights than you do. Now, obviously, if you give them rights, there are other issues that come with that, but I think there's at least some positives that can come from that, rather than just, all right, you're an oppressed society now, screw you. Given, however, the approach of Harmonia, it makes sense that they do this because they're not really about bringing the world together in some kind of unification or some kind of betterment for society thing. They're about their, the expansion of their own influence and power and their real goal. Which brings me to the next thing, and this is the really big thing I want to talk about in this game. That's a man named Hikusak. Now, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, he's only referenced like five times... But I believe he's the real, the closest thing we have to a real villain of the entire series. As I mentioned earlier, I wasn't able to verify anything about the rumors or thoughts about where the series was going to go. But to me, it feels like Suikoden 1 through 3 were all the build-up to this story about Hikusak. Now, when you actually uh, talk to some of the, the developers and the interviewers, the interviewers were... Uh, ah! In interviews, talking to the developers, I can talk, I swear, the, this, the Suikoden 1 through 5 is referred to as the True Rune Saga, as if they were specifically trying to divvy up which games were, were involved in which story arcs, which makes sense. The thing is, uh, that wasn't really planned. We do know that Suikoden 5 was not actually supposed to be part of the True Rune Saga, and given how much it basically doesn't matter for the setting, that, that makes a degree of sense. I mean, yay, Southern Continent, and yay, brief interactions with other people, George, you know. But otherwise, it's completely irrelevant. To me, though, I can't imagine that they were just doing this story and were willing to just let it go. Because everything feels like they're putting all these dominoes to down into this wonderful pattern, and then they just walk away and never actually knock them over. Hikusak is the biggest example of this. So first of all, he's the guy who basically founded Holy Harmonia. We don't know a lot of details about that, but he took down the Aronian, I hope I'm saying that one right, kingdom, and basically usurped it and established his own theocracy. He is also the holder of the Circle Rune, which we're not really 100% sure what it does. But the most common implication is that it is the rune of balance. We also know that he is behind two major things. First of all, the political aspirations of Harmonia, which again makes him at least partially behind the incidents of, of Suikoden 1 and 2 and 3. But also the fact that he's trying to get the true runes. Now, Harmonia has always been about getting the true runes. That's, that's nothing new. What we didn't know is that he was trying to bypass the methodology of true rune acquisition, because you can only have one true rune in one body at any given point in time. But Hikusak, he had an idea. I'm going to make a bunch of clones of myself, and therefore we will have all these different people who are still me, who will still be different bodies, though, so they can each have a true rune, and then either I'll mind control them or take them over or merge them back into myself. The details are unclear because we just know so little about this guy. 
but he was the one trying to obtain all 27 true runes, and that is very interesting to me. Because, as I've said before, back in my Suikoden 2 rumination, the true runes and everything about them is probably one of the most interesting things about the setting to me that doesn't involve the war stuff and the politics stuff. The setting itself, the true runes, I've talked about this before, but I want to add this as well, because we got to now talk about Luke and his plan. You ever have a situation where you're rooting for the villain because you want them to succeed for reasons that are different than their reasons? Be they're evil. <laughs> but you kind of agree with them on one point. Just the one point, right? Like, you don't agree with their methods. You don't agree with their other crap they do. But then, then, then they do this one thing that's like, well, but you're right. Xehanort, Kingdom Hearts, that's a good example of that for me. It's like, no, God, we need to get rid of the tyranny of the light. I agree. Stop being an evil bastard about it. <laughs> that's me on Luke. Because... It's presented that he keeps seeing these visions. And the thing is, he's getting these visions from the true wind rune. Remember that fact. So, he's getting all these visions about a horrible, desolate, blank future. And he keeps talking about how he wants to destroy God and destroy fate and his great war and blah, blah, blah. Because he, wants, he, he foresees a future where everything is desolate and horrible. But his goal is to destroy the true runes. And in fact, this game is all about him procuring the true elemental ruins, which, let's see, there's wind, lightning, fire, uh, water, earth, I want to say. That sounds about right. And destroy them. Now, here's the fun part. We don't know what would happen if he succeeded. There's plenty of theories. Some people theorize in the game itself that the destruction of the true ruins would lead to a destruction of that concept that these are literally anchor points of reality, and therefore, you know, if the wind rune dies, then wind will kind of stop being a thing. Uh, see Final Fantasy V or Bravely Default for an example of how bad that can be. I don't know if that's true or not, because we don't know if that's true or not. And if that is true, then that would certainly make Luke a bad guy and someone I don't really agree with. But what if the true runes aren't actually tied into reality in such a direct and demonstrable way? What if they are simply really powerful runes? I've, I've argued myself that there is a degree of intellect, maybe not true sentience and sapiens, but definitely some kind of driving will behind the true runes. And I still feel that way. That, that's the, this, going through this game has not changed my opinion on that at all. In fact, it has reinforced it. Um, the fact that the true wind rune is feeding these visions into Luke really implies to me that there is some kind of... Uh, goal, plan, direction in mind, even if it's something of a more animal-level instinct, it's still there. But that brings up the question of why. See, the true wind rune, in so doing, is basically ensuring its own destruction. And Luke keeps making reference to this whole war amongst the gods thing. And there's also the implication that Hikusak himself wanted to become god, not a god. Like, God-God. Like, like a God that's just above and beyond everything else. I guess Abrahamian, or how are you supposed to say that, kind of a God. Um, by controlling all 27 runes. That he would, reality would just be his plaything. One of the things that's also emphasized in this game several times is that Harmonia is a place of basically stagnation. That for all of its advances and for all of its power, stuff there just kind of stays the way it is and is very oppressed society. I mentioned the classes thing earlier. Thus, I wonder if the true wind rune was telling him the, the vision of what would happen if he succeeded, and thus he was able to flatten out the whole world. Remember, circle rune might mean balance. 
And it also might mean stagnation, because that's what true balance would probably equate to under certain mentalities. Uh, so maybe he was seeing a vision of what if, uh, if, if Higgisak had actually succeeded. But the way he describes it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like he's describing something where everyone has been wiped out and the whole land is desolate and destroyed. And the only way to stop this is to destroy the runes. Why? There's some logic gaps here, and I don't feel, the way it's presented, I don't feel like it's bad, bad writing. I feel like it's absent writing. Like, literally, there's bits of the story that we are fundamentally missing and has never been, has never been followed through on. So we could end effectively a dead franchise right now. I shouldn't even say effectively. It is a dead franchise right now. It's been years upon years since the last we could end anything came out. And so I have no idea where they were going with this. Which brings me to my final question. What do you guys think? What do you think was going on with those visions? What do you think was going on with Hikusok's plan? What do you think's up with the true runes? Luke uses his position as a bishop to bring this war and, and to try and use the Sindarian techniques in order to take all these runes and bring them unto himself and blah, 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 and then to destroy them. He, it's also, I don't remember if they say this out loud, actually, if I'm being completely honest, but I got the very strong impression that the technique he was going to use to destroy the true runes was also a Sindar technique. Now, that makes sense, since we know the Sindarians had tons of ability to influence and manipulate the true runes. I mean, he literally used a Sindar technique in order to rip a true rune out of person, so we know they have at least some power over them, but... I would love to know more about the Sindarians, too, or on the subject, but anyways... Maybe they're uh, an immigrant from another world. We know the multiple dimensions thing is a thing. His army in the last battle is literally pulled, summoned stuff from other dimensions. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. Point being, what do you think would have been the impact if Luke had succeeded? Remember, he was trying to kill himself in this too. That was actually part of his goal. I die taking the runes with me, thus preventing this horrible catastrophe. There's a lot of empty space here, and it's basically, it, it feels a little bit too empty to properly speculate on. I feel like I'm writing my own story in, 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 in what is effectively an empty page with like a sentence here, and then a sentence here, and then a sentence here. Now, I like to think that the True Runes have been playing their own game of chess. That's pretty much what, what I've had the impression of ever since Weekend and One, and that is still an impression I have to this day, that the True Runes are just playing their own little game against each other. And their goals... Their motivations vary because they're runes. They don't really think or function like we do. But whatever it is, they are willing to do whatever it is that's necessary and are very patient in the uh, desire to accumulate the success of their goal. So I feel like this is actually the true wind rune, for whatever reason, moving a few pieces on the board in order to take out the other true elemental runes. That's my impression. And the visions that the true wind rune was feeding Luke are completely false. The true wind rune might have even been destroyed in the process of this, but that would have still succeeded at its goal and therefore won the game. I also think Hikusak, has, and I don't want to portray him in a positive light because he's, by all accounts he's a horribly evil person, is someone who is basically trying to usurp the game. By controlling all the runes simultaneously, he will then be able to be the person playing the game, except he's controlling all the pieces. You know, to continue the chess analogy, imagine if you're sitting at a board alone and the only one moving the pieces around is you. That sounds very boring to me, but what the hell do I know? <laughs> the, uh... And it's actually kind of frustrating to me, uh, especially if you choose Hugo 
I've, I've seen, I watched a couple of cutscenes uh, of the different endings, because the endings vary based on if you choose uh, Gido, Hugo, or Chris. I chose Chris, as I mentioned earlier. But Hugo uh, especially is just kind of like, ah, I refuse to listen. I'll never let you do this. And it, it feels just like, like at no point in time do the heroes give any level of attention to Luke's uh, uh, dialogue. It is, of course, worth noting that Luke only tries to dialogue as the very last strategy. Oh, excuse me. First thing he tries to do is to force the situation. Second thing he tries to do is to militarily push the situation. And then when he's abandoned by his own military and Harmonia joins forces with the Grassons and the Zexans to go against him, he's like, okay, I'll summon armies from another world then. Screw it. Okay, they beat those two. Crap. Okay, let's talk. <laughs> if he had tried to be diplomatic earlier, maybe he would have had a slightly greater modicum of success rather than, I'm going to make a mess of this entire region because of my own reasons, which may or may not be valid. It's also worth noting that Luke's kind of a brat in the first game and the second game. I mean, God sakes, the only reason he even unleashed the true wind rune back in the second game was because Sasaria, Sasari, Sasari, God, I can't do that word. The other bishop was there. <laughs> Sasari. I'm going to go with Sasari. Um, so it's not like he isn't already kind of a selfish, nippy little prat. It actually makes me wonder a lot if he is indicative of the mentality of Hikusok. You know, being a clone of him. Of course, we don't really know how cloning works in this setting at all, so who freaking knows. Um, that's all I got. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this game. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts. I'm really looking forward to the comments section. I'm also dreading the comments section. But regardless, I will be seeing you guys next time.